0: Dennis Kucinich has an announcement today, this afternoon, at one of the Cleveland script signs, it sounds like. That sounds like he's going to run for mayor. We'll see. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Monday. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Layla Atassi. Jane Cahoon has taken the week off. But you guys have a good weekend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. This, this Very morning nice I weather. My- Yeah, it was beautiful. And this morning, I had my first uh, sunrise swim in the lake. So it's official. Summer's here. So
0: you're covered with bacteria and you'll be sick (laughs) before the week's over. We'll have to replace you and Jane. We'll see. Let's begin. Why is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority starting over in its mission to replace its trains? Aren't the RTA trains almost kaput? Leila Tassi, this is distressing. We've been talking for years about how close to the end of their lives all of these trains are, and now we've got another big delay.
2: Yeah, seriously. So on Friday, Courtney Astolfi learned that RTA had canceled its first attempt to find a manufacturer of rail cars to replace this aging fleet. After receiving only one proposal that was not at all what they were looking for, in 2019, a consultant had told RTA that the Red Line's heavy rail fleet was in such poor condition that they might be able to get five more years out of those cars. So this delay is really going to be a setback for them. They say that they'll be putting out another request for proposals in the next few months. The light rail fleet has, you know, 10 years maybe of useful life left. RTA put out this request back in February and was looking for uh, a, ma- a manufacturer who could supply cars to outfit kind of a standardized fleet to run on all three lines. It's it's somewhat of a specialized product, but they were only giving companies until May to respond to this. Twice RTA denied manufacturers their request for an extension to submit proposals, which prompted the Transit Advocacy Group All aboard Ohio to file a complaint with the Federal Transportation Administration. All aboard aboard Ohio was concerned that those denials would suppress competition among bidders and could drive up costs for taxpayers and what's already expected to be a $240 million purchase. So the expectation now is that this second attempt at soliciting bids will have a longer deadline, maybe four months is what the advocacy group was seeking. It It seems RTA just really had to kind of learn this lesson the hard way.
0: Well, what's sad is that it sounds like they knew they're under some urgency. They need to get this done, so they didn't give more time. But the result of that is a staggering amount of war time.
2: Exactly, and they are
0: asking for something that's unusual. It wasn't like it's an off-the-shelf kind of product. They were asking somebody to kind of design for them and three right. months doesn't seem like a lot of time we've been hearing forever that these things are getting near the end of their lives there's a lot of breakdowns on these lines or they have to shut it down there's also the possibility of using stimulus money for this so there is That's some true. reason to move quickly but yeah, right. the, the, the other thing is when we talk about how one set of trains is five years away one set of trains is ten years away and that was a year ago uh the the as they get closer and closer, they break down more and more. It's not I'm like sure. they run until the clock runs out and then they just fall apart. They slowly fall apart and fall apart more and more. So RTA is in a jam if they want to get this thing going. Right. I, and
2: and there it, just aren't that many manufacturers who make these these cars. So to not to have denied those extensions seems sort of ridiculous. And, and now they're paying the price for it.
0: Yeah, and we're all going to pay the price for it. Okay. You're listening to this week in the C L E. Hey, Chris Quinn here, editor of cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Laura, Jane, Layla, and I are ever so grateful that you listen to this podcast. We have a good time with this daily conversation. We appreciate the many notes you've sent us telling us how much you feel a part of it. So we've got a favor to ask. We're trying to find out how people listen to this podcast and where they learned about it so we can get it to others who also might like it. We're hoping you'll take a few minutes to fill out a survey to help us learn a few things. You can find it at www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. Again, that's www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. Thanks so much for taking the time. What was the unintended consequence for the Sandusky tourism industry of Cedar Point raising its wages to $20 an hour to get enough workers to operate full-time? Lord Johnston, Susan Glasser put together a really interesting story about the, the law of unintended consequences, and things are pretty dire in Sandusky.
1: Yeah, absolutely. These small businesses cannot compete with the Goliath that is Cedar Point, so because Cedar Point is offering more money, it's harder for small businesses with shallower pockets to find workers. Small businesses like shops or restaurants, they can't find people to work at the wages they can afford to pay. And unlike Cedar Point, Cedar Fair is a much you know bigger company than even just the amusement park. They can't absorb the cost of raising pay. So some restaurants are closing a few days a week, shops are closing early, and they're just, they're facing their biggest season. This is where they make their most money and they can't Stay open. So obviously this was already a problem, but think about it, if you can get a job anywhere and you can get a job for twenty dollars an hour, you can get one for 10, like what are you gonna pick? Cedar Point has like a huge variety of jobs. There are ride attendants, there are shop salespeople, there are restaurants all in the park. Um, and and they're hiring the bulk of the people. And actually, I, I went there on Saturday and they still closed at eight o'clock. There was a big crowd because the, you know Cedar Point still doesn't have all the workers they want.
0: Although they say they're going to, yeah. they say they're close. Yeah. The, the what's what's it's an amazing moment kind of in American history. We've had so many years where the Fed and the government have kept inflation down, but but wages have become so low that a lot of people are just saying it's not worth it. I, I read a story over the weekend that a lot of people who are being called back to the workplace are saying, you know what, <laughs> I quit. I'm not coming back. It's not worth it. You're not paying me enough. And What's sad is, is that these small businesses can't afford it. I mean, there was one mom and pop shop where they they said, there's just no way we usually hire kids for the summer, but they're all going to get the 20 bucks an hour. But it does speak to the need for a higher wage in America. I mean, we had a big battle over whether the minimum wage should be 15 bucks an hour and it's not enough. What did the uh, expert she talked to say about whether the wages would drop next year?
1: They said that would be really hard to do. Like, how are you going to keep your workforce if you work for one summer at $20 an hour and then you come back and they want to drop your pay to like $12? You're going to get a you know whole lot of people rebelling. There is an interesting question about the international workforce because they usually rely a lot on foreign workers that are not able to come this year. So if there's an influx of, of people from that, maybe that would lower the wages a little bit, but they said most likely they'll just stay at 20 until other places catch up with them.
0: Which is what I think will happen in a lot of uh, industries. The the people, the employers that want to do business are going to have to pay more, or they're not going to get the employees. It's
1: it's really interesting. This has got to be playing out all over the place, right? I mean, this isn't the only place that this is happening, um, where the bigger Corporations can offer more and the small businesses are just saying, you know, what What do we do? Well, it's it does not, raise, like, it's it not raises, like they were doing well before the, you know, during the pandemic either.
0: Right. It raises questions whether the Sandusky tourism industry will survive this. I mean, there's a lot of small businesses that cannot cannot pay that kind of wage. So if they all go belly up. What what happens in Sandusky? You'll always have Cedar Point. But what about the rest of it?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we, we were leaving the park and it was close to nine o'clock and we hadn't eaten dinner. Right. And I was like, guys, there's a Dairy Queen. Like, let's just eat a Dairy Queen. And <laughs> it was closed on a Saturday night at nine o'clock. I was like, sorry, kids. <laughs> was it really?
0: Yeah. On a I mean, Saturday night in June, the Dairy Queen was closed. Wow.
2: Yeah. So...
1: And it was, it's right off the causeway. Like it's the, one of the thing that you, the first things you would see leaving Cedar Point, you'd be like, oh yes, that's what I want right now. It's closed.
2: When was that, Laura? When did you go? Saturday. So did it seem that the lines were alleviated and things? Did it seem the tiring had picked up?
1: We got there right when the park opened at 10 a.m. and we walked onto the Magnum, which I've never I mean, not that I go all the time, but th- I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Right, for
0: people who are not aware, what is the Magnum?
1: I, I don't even know how old it is, but it's, you know, a pretty classic coaster at this point um, that does not go upside down. And, and it is probably one of their most well-known beloved rides, even if it's not the scariest anymore.
2: Yeah. Back when when 200 feet was an impressive <laughs> for <a> roller coaster. <laughs> Can I just say it was...
0: Go ahead, Layla. It. I was just
2: gonna say, when I was a kid, it was my my life's dream to work at Cedar Point. So I see this twenty dollars wage as uh, a. Are you gonna quit? Quit your job here. <laughs> Back <laughs> in the eighties, they wore some sweet jumpsuits at oh, yes, Cedar Point, yes. and I no, loved now it. now
1: they get to wear khaki shorts and polo shirts. Yeah. Those well, jumpsuits cool. are
0: cool. No Layla, you can't go work there. I, I might just go buy a jumpsuit. weekend weekend, <laughs> we're upset that you're writing less. And one person said, Aww. "I'm gonna hold Chris Quinn accountable to make sure she gets time to write." <laughs> so, so Layla, we'll just That's make great.
1: sure our kids get to. work work there and like you know <laughs> it's right. you well, not,
2: yeah i don't want them driving all the way out there but yeah 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 25. okay
0: moving on <laughs> you're listening this week in the cle how much money do we think smaller cities and villages in Cuyahoga County will get from the big stimulus bill? And what about towns in neighboring counties? Lila Tassi, this is a little bit elusive because everybody who's in charge of this money is being closed mouthed. But Robin Goist, our stimulus watch reporter, made a game effort at estimating it.
2: Yeah, she did a great job of breaking this down in her latest installment. So we know how much the big cities are getting. We've been talking about that for months. But when it comes to these smaller towns and villages and towns, townships. All we've been told is that Ohio will get $843 million in change to distribute among them all, and that the state's Office of Budget and Management would be responsible for calculating how much each municipality gets. Those determinations haven't been made yet. So Robin went ahead and applied what we do know from census data and from the federal guidelines on distributing this money, and she came up with a pretty solid set of estimates for how much each smaller town in our seven-county radius might get. The calculations for the big metro areas like Cleveland are based on the funding formulas for federal community development block grants, which can be complicated, as Robin's explained (laughs) in past stories. But for these smaller towns, they'll be getting funding based entirely on population. So the calculation is a lot more straightforward. That said, not every township necessarily gets stimulus money. Ohio is one of a handful of states with so-called weak townships. That means that it's those townships uh, have a governmental authority, but they might not provide services the way a city does. so they might not even have a use for the money. So it's upon the state to decide which townships should get money and how much. With all of that said, Robin's calculations are based on the assumption that every municipality will get something. If that turns out not to be the case and a couple townships don't get don't make the cut, it would just simply mean that, uh, you know, money would be redistributed across the board, uh, but generally, her predictions give us a really strong idea of who's getting what, uh, and and you know, kind of what what we can expect moving forward. And I think those announcements should be made in the next, you know, month or two. I because I think we're, we're up against some federal reporting deadlines here. So,
0: although the federal reporting on this is pretty weak, it the, the, the even though these amounts don't come close to the, the amounts that Cleveland is getting and some of the other big governments, compared to the size of their budgets, it's a lot of money. I mean, they suddenly have a chunk of money, uh, most of the governments that we have around here. Uh, and what do they do with it? Well, how, how do you use this one-time money to make a difference for your residents? It's part of the reason we're doing Stimulus Watch, but we have yet to hear. Our editorial board published an editorial this weekend for Cleveland saying, come on, let's Think huge, you know. Let's yeah. wipe out lead paint, or let's put broadband in every single neighborhood, or you know, let's make sure the food bank is whole because they're they're in the red a bit as they build their new building. But on the small government level, what do you do? What you know? What if a handful of them got together and and built a bike trail network, you know, that would link up to the towpath <laughs> to more fully develop something that everybody would use
2: every day. Well, you, lo- you lost me at at a handful of them get together. Nobody gets <laughs> together around here, okay? There's no like crossing fiefdoms when it comes to money. Everyone just scrapes for it and then they, you know, find some piddly use for it. It's uh, there's no regionalism. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm
0: a little bit surprised that the community isn't coming together in a way to to talk about this. Maybe it's all because of the pandemic fatigue and people are trying to get back to normal, but this is a chance to dream. It's the first chance we've had for governments to dream forever. I mean, in my 25 years here, they've never suddenly had a chunk of change that can make a difference. And yet you just are not hearing that thoughtfulness anywhere. Right.
2: There's such a lack of inspired ideas surrounding this, but I love that idea of having some kind of summit to discuss the, you know, the possibilities. That would be so cool if they if if cities actually did uh you know come together in that way, like a brainstorming session for how to spend these millions. God, that's a good idea.
0: Well, think about it. Back in, uh, in the early 2000s, early aughts, when Jane Campbell first was elected mayor, she brought the community together for a series of brainstorms on what you could do with the lakefront. She eventually caved to the business interest that wouldn't shut down Burke because she was lame. But, but it was a great exercise. People came from all over the place to just imagine what you could do with the, with the lakefront. Many of the things that they dreamed of are happening today. So why not do that? Why not say, look, we, Northeast Ohio has a big bundle of money. When you add it all together, those are big sums. What can we do with it to, to, right. to make a difference? None of their budgets are really hurting because of the pandemic. Everybody has pretty much made it through. So there's extra cash and you just know these they're going to squander it. <laughs> they're gonna, and, it's, and we'll be looking back 10 years from now going, what an opportunity wasted.
1: This is Laura Johnston. I feel like we've done these big thought things I don't even remember the name of all of them where everybody came together and like you know whiteboarded all these big ideas and I don't know that anything tangible has come out of it like right here we have a tangible thing we could do like we could spend this money rather than just dreaming up down the future so so you'd think that they could get everyone together to do it
2: yeah imagine if the Cleveland what if Cleveland rising had taken place
1: now that's what I was looking for that word Well, it
0: wasn't just Cleveland Rising. There were three, three of these efforts, at least, that I know about. And in the end... Everything you come up with costs money and there was no money. Now we have the money and there's no ideas. <laughs> it's like <laughs> come on, let's have the ideas. I am you know, the Greater Klugen Partnership would normally be sparking this kind of a discussion or some of the nonprofits would get together and spark the discussion. I it's just where is you're leaving this to to city councils and people who are kind of nebbishy to think about running running their operations instead of, hey, I mean, th- think about it like the Works Progress Administration, right? We still have the benefit of the money that was poured into that for special projects. This is a version of that. Where is the, the big thought?
2: Actually, now come to think of it, I am wondering why none of those Cleveland rising ideas are being connected to this funding stream. How come no one Did- is starting that conversation?
0: I don't know. It's it's a it's boggling the a, mind.
2: Energy.
1: Start well it. we had
0: a big editorial about it Sunday. We're trying to do our part. You're listening to this week in this CLE. It's June. Summer starts officially next week. So why is it so hard to find a kayak or a paddleboard? And for this we turn to our yoga practitioner on the paddleboard, <laughs> Laura Johnston.
1: It's the same reason we're having issues with everything to get uh supply and demand. So the pandemic Caused a huge demand increase in kayaking and other water sports. And there's no slowing down, even though things are reopening. People want them, and there's a supply problem because of the same kind of factory issues and shipping issues with everything else. A lot of these paddle boards are made in Asia. Factories were shut down. Not all of them have completely reopened. And even when they get to the United States, they might be sitting in a container. They might not have the shipping, uh, the trucks to get them where they need to go. So Bill Cochran, who runs Nalu um, Paddleboarding in Rocky River, said that if you want it, like you better buy it because they're going to be gone by July.
0: What I found interesting, one of the facts that was interesting in this story is there was a change of heart about these products a few years ago where people suddenly expected them to be durable goods, that they expected oh, yes. them to be long-term use, which I always thought kayaks were because they're not cheap. But paddleboards, I guess, in the beginning were not thought of that way, but now they are. And so they're more expensive to make, which is why getting the materials is a little more difficult. One other thing that it said, and maybe you can explain it. It said that the boards are here, but the extra parts are missing. So what are the parts like little rings to tie your paddle to, or what What, what exactly were they no, talking about there?
1: I, I'm not sure exactly what parts are hard to get, but everything, you, you got to have a leash for your paddle board, which is like an, um, like a strap that goes around your board and goes around your foot, like you legally have to have that so that you do your board doesn't go lo- get lost in the lake. Um, you have to have that. Um, so there, there it might just be elastic issues or you know things with that. Obviously, you want the board, you want the paddle, you need a pump if you've got an inflatable board. Um, mm-hmm. Board like I do. So there's all sorts of things that do come with it. A lot of these come with the backpacks so that you can like tote the inflatables around. And what the manufacturing is, it used to be like they'd have a huge amount of inventory of the stuff they needed to make it. And they, you know, then they'd have to store it. So manufacturing is switched to a just-in-time model where you would plan out what you were going to make when, and you got the goods to make it just before you needed it. And that's a real problem when you're dealing with shipping delays. All
0: right. So you mentioned the backpack thing, the, the pet peeve. Yeah. I, I have a couple of, of, um, blow, you know, the air inflated paddle boards and those backpacks are as big as I am. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever used it? Have you ever struggled?
1: Yes. Only to go down the stairs at our cottage in Canada because, um, to actually strap it on and like put the strap around my waist too, but it does. Mine has wheels, which is a little more useful. But honestly, I end up just like picking it up, putting it in the van, taking it out. Like I'm too lazy to pack it tight enough to get Wait, it. In you the
2: put back. the you put the paddleboard on your back.
0: Yeah, you roll it up. Oh, yeah. it's the inflatable. uninflated
2: paddleboard. Okay. But yes. <laughs> it, but it's
0: it's really big even when it's uninflated. And when I look at those backpacks, it's like I'm not. I mean, putting that on, it, it, it just seems like nobody's going to do that. It's a it's a gimmick. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. What do the Sisters of Charity have in mind for a new health campus in the middle of Cleveland in the central neighborhood? Leila Tassi. This piece of news broke fairly late Friday, and it sounds intriguing. What they want to do there.
2: It is, yeah. Their plan is to create the St. Vincent Charity Health Campus in the city's central neighborhood, aiming to build up medical and social services around the St. Vincent Charity Medical Center. That would serve as the anchor for this project. They control more than 17 acres in the area of the East 22nd Street Hospital. The hope is that development will also help the entire neighborhood and that organizations that provide educational and health services will also set up shop near the hospital the sisters of charity hired a firm out of boston very interestingly to help develop plans based on the needs identified by residents and they're going to take the rest of the year to gather that feedback and kind of process it and decide what's best this concept really spun out of that the health disparities that were laid bare during the pandemic that struck minority communities so disproportionately hard the aim is is to address those social determinants of health and And while the Sisters of Charity don't know yet how much this project is going to cost or how they're going to pay for it, they're confident that find, that funding will come because of the high interest in the community to address those social determinants. So uh, it's um it's interesting. I, I was really kind of struck by the fact that they're going with a firm out of Boston to to kind of figure out what the needs are for people here in in Cleveland because, they're really starting from scratch. They don't really know what, uh, what the needs are in our community. I'm, I'm surprised that they would go with an out of town firm, but you know, who knows, <laughs> you know, the
0: old, um, the old juvenile court building, actually a beautiful historic building is right in that area. And one of Armin Budish's better ideas was to convert that into a treatment facility mm. for people who are arrested with substance abuse problems and align it with St. Vincent Charity Hospital because they do a lot of that kind of work and I wonder if nobody's saying that yet but I wonder if that's part of the thought here because that that would extend the St. Vincent campus a bit because they're not right next to each other but it would build a bit of a symbiosis and I wonder if that's what they're trying to do is to to put all that together be cool to see what they come up with really good mm-hmm. that they're talking to people before they go into it making sure Certainly. they get buy in because we don't always get that so Uh, You know, St. Vincent Charity Hospital is always a little bit in in risk, I think, because they're in a city with major hospital systems. And if this could give it some longer-term health, that would be good, too. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Business Volunteers Unlimited, which recruits and trains professionals to serve on nonprofit boards, dealing with the dire need to diversify the nonprofit boards by race and gender? or Johnston there's a major transition going on at this organization which is makes this an interesting time to talk about it
1: yeah they're getting a new ceo um and it, it it's a process that they've been doing for the last couple of years but i think there's just been more and more interest and um emphasis on getting minority applicants for volunteer boards because it's really important to have a diverse set of leaders for all of these nonprofits. Business Volunteers Unlimited recruits and trains local professionals to serve on the nonprofit boards. In recent years, they've matched about 15% of their matches have been people of color, and they've bumped that up to about 26% this year. They've helped 100 people get on volunteer boards, in part because they really amped up their Minority Pipeline Initiative Task Force last year after the George Floyd protests. They added new members, including former Cleveland Mayor Michael White and retired PNC Bank Executive Paul Clark. And uh, not only do they vet professionals, see if they're a good fit, try to find the right board for them to be on, but they also help train them so they understand what's expected as a board member so they don't have to spend as much time getting acclimated once they join. And it actually waives the fee for minority applicants because they're really, really focusing on getting more.
0: So there must be more nonprofit boards than I know to have an organization that's just focused on doing this. um, are, Are they just busy all the time trying to find people to serve on these boards?
1: There, there, they must be. I mean, I don't even know how many nonprofit boards there are in Cleveland. Um, it does feel like there's a you know a new nonprofit popping up all of the time. Um, but the idea is is that you don't want just like a token minority on a board, right? You want it to be organic, and you want there to be more than one so that they have a real influence. Randy McShepherd chairs the task force. Um, at Business Volunteers Unlimited. He said it's not about just checking the box. At one point, and this was years ago, like more than a decade ago, he said he was asked to be on 22 boards in one wow. year. And that was not a compliment. That was just because they didn't know any other minority applicants or you know people who might be interested. So his goal is just to encourage a whole lot more people to get involved.
0: Okay, good stuff. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much money has attorney Jeff Applebaum made off the taxpayers since he started peddling the design build system of paying for major public construction? Leila Tassi, we're not going to talk about design build. We did that before. And it's <laughs> technical and complex and kind of boring. But Jeff Applebaum has made a bundle of tax dollars. What did we learn?
2: Yeah. So Courtney Astolfi got the records and discovered that since 2009, Applebaum's firm, Project Management Consultants, which is a subsidiary of the law firm Thompson Hine, has made at least $10 million on public contracts. And much of that was on contracts that use this so-called design-build structure. And, you know, Applebaum is really the guy who kind of paved the way for using design-build in Ohio on public projects. Uh, Before 2011, state law required all projects to be uh, traditionally built. bid. And Applebaum explained to Courtney that as a lawyer he had been representing contractors in public contracts that went south and he saw the same problems over and over and over again with these traditionally bid projects. And so he saw design build as a way to improve upon that system. So he lobbied the state government for a change to the law and he succeeded. And since then some of the biggest public contracts of his have been design build, the MedMart, the Huntington Convention Center and the Hilton Hotel. And one contractor or one contract kind of leads to another. So county legislation approving the contract for the Hilton states that the work went to Applebaum's firm because it had also ser- served uh, as the the owner's rep on the convention and the global centers. Uh, currently, he's working also on the, the new county jail for which county council recently approved a $1.27 million extension on what began as an $800,000 contract for him. So that's kind of the news peg on this story. You know, that said I think it's important to note that that Applebaum worked on many projects that predated the change in the law that allowed design build such as Gateway for in, for instance. He was a, a very he has a very strong reputation in his field. His services are sought out nationwide and that's what he told Courtney. He says, you know, he could actually be making a whole lot more money in the private sector and that the county is actually getting him for a bargain. In in a statement, Armin Budish agreed with that and said, you know, we're lucky to have such an expert as Applebaum in our own backyard here. His critics say it's never good when a government becomes loyal to one contractor. Lee, Lee Weingart, who's running for county executive, pointed out to Courtney that when you use a consultant or contractor over and over again, it could get to the point where you just kind of go along with whatever the contractor says without scrutiny. And in the case of the jail project, Weingart says that could lead to building a much bigger facility than is necessary. So it's just a great, great story tapping into some old records uh, and looking back on on the, the history of the, of Applebaum's career and and how much he's, he's profited uh, on these public contracts.
0: He can be abrasive as hell when you question design build, <laughs> but there was, there is one thing in that story that really speaks in favor of him. The one big project he was not involved in was the juvenile justice complex, right, right, that's which right. was oh. a, disaster. a disaster. I mean, right. it's almost like Jimmy DeMora held on to that one because he wanted to be graft and corrupt and all that. <laughs> and so that thing, the cost overruns were ridiculous. That it was built like a Taj Mahal. So when you see that's the right. one project he didn't work on, and it was such a bad one, you got to kind of sit back and think, maybe everybody's right that that's he's an excellent a good for controlling stuff. He did say for free he's done a big analysis where he's trying to shrink the size of the jail and justice center. Uh so I mean, I, you know, the, what did the hotel come in 30 30 something 30% or 30 million under budget? I mean, yeah, we right, have had right. some real successes fiscally by doing it this way. Uh, That's and true. It's That's because at home. the front,
2: the front end of the of that process requires, you know, setting a cap. And if if you violate that cap, then there are safeguards around it. Either the you know the design builder absorbs the cost, or you know. And Peter Kraus, he did a great job of of laying all that out in his his story a few weeks back. And Laura, this
1: is this, this is Laura Johnston. I worked a lot covering Jeff and the building of the Medical Mart and the um, convention center. And remember, he took that over from. MMPI and well, not took over. He worked with the company was MMPI and owned by a Kennedy um, relative and Tim Hagan made the deal. So he took over what was like a really interesting contract and try to make it feasible well, and
0: let's face it mmpi <laughs> pretty much stuck it to cuyoga county and it was that kennedy yeah. mystique Applebaum came in and cleaned that mess up that was right. that was headed right. for pure disaster you could still say the medical mart was a stupid idea but it wasn't his <laughs> yes. idea he, he right. was the guy that fixed it and brought it into some control we've spent a lot of time talking to him over the years and it does feel like when you look in total that he's been good for the taxpayer.
1: And he is one of those people that can take, you can be like, well, what exactly does this mean? Like, please explain it in English. So I've always appreciated that about yeah. him. So good
0: stuff. Check out the story by Courtney Astolfi on cleveland.com. You are listening to This Week in the CLE Always like talking on Mondays. We have lots of good meaty stories to talk about. Tuesday is the tough day, so let's get to work. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.